Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take 100 herons and chop their heads off. Eviscerate the herons. And then it went on to put spices like mace and nutmeg and cinnamon and then to pickle them. And it was, do you know what it reminded me of? Like, almost like an escabeche. There exists around the world something of a movable feast of high-end global chef gatherings. It started maybe with Madrid Fusion and then Cook It Raw, Mad Symposium, and in recent years, Food on the Edge in Galway, Ireland, a four-day celebration of Irish products and global chef culture. I was invited to Food on the Edge last month to talk about Bourdain and his writing. That's a difficult thing to do even in good times, something like taking pictures of someone else's music. And I probably would not have gone if it weren't for the man you'll hear in this episode, the founder of Food on the Edge, J.P. McMahon. J.P. has a voluminous red beard and mischievous eyes, a Michelin star and a delightfully foul mouth. He's everything I want from an Irishman. We talked about Irish food culture, Bourdain's legacy, and then J.P. did something I did not expect. He used the verb to fuck something to mean to throw it. As in, it's fish, just fuck it all in a box. How could you not love Ireland? This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. JP, what are we drinking? We're drinking Dingle Gin. Dingle Gin and some elderflower that we've uh, preserved from the earlier on in the in the year. And what is Dingle Gin? Dingle Gin is a gin that's brewed in Dingle. <laughs> but it just sounds really good, yeah, it Dingle is. Gin. But uh, now nah, it's got some, uh, I suppose it's, uh, it's this like, I suppose, part of the gin revolution that has happened in Ireland. I suppose the same happened all over the world. Everyone started to make gin. Uh, yeah, I suppose, could you call it a terroir gin? Is that too fancy? Nothing's too fancy yeah. for... It's got rowan berries, juniper, fuchsia, bog myrtle, heather, chervil, hawthorn, and angelica and coriander, so... Jesus. Uh, yeah, I know. That's like a whole prairie. Jesus. Fuck, it's nice. Yeah? Yeah. We smelling this now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's subtle, you know? Uh, I dig it. I mean, don't let me start shit here, but isn't gin like the... the the booze of the oppressor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like the, well, I don't know if the British, the British didn't invent it, but I think it came from Holland. Possibly. Yeah, it's yeah, the, it's the Dutch, but you know they came. It's a Protestant drink. Yeah, for starters, <laughs> maybe that's why it's doing so well. You know, Catholicism <laughs> is on the way out, so uh, everyone in Ireland is becoming a Protestant. I've actually made a seaweed gin myself, like a, from a base spirit, and it's nice. We're gonna mix some elderflower just yeah, in case just, we um, need some more botanicals in yeah the yeah but like it's yeah it's a, we don't you don't have to you know i don't want to force it into you <laughs> have we met before <laughs> <laughs> no like we got two uh, beautiful uh glasses um and we've got some uh some gin came from an overnight flight uh, from new york just landed this morning this is perfect gin time um so you're putting elderflower it's elderflower cordial yeah cordial. we might need to put a bit of a 
sparkling water. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah Just yeah. because I don't want to fucking make it taste like piss. Elleflower has. <laughs> that would be really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This famous Irish chef made me a piss cocktail. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> cheers. cheers. Here's to that. I think there's not enough gin in it. For two in the afternoon? Yeah. I, mean, I think. It's all right. We'll just put a drop in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I think. It's just a, bit, a dingle. Yeah, just a, a touch of dingle. All right, tell me tell me where we are. We're looking out the window uh, over Galway Bay, and uh, we're in the, the Galmont Hotel, So, uh, and we're, I suppose, getting ready for uh, for Food on the Edge. So Food on the Edge is a annual conference. It's been going on for five years? Uh, four, four years. Four years? Yeah, yeah. It's become like one of the kind of must-do stops in this very interesting subculture of like culinary wanderers yeah yeah pr- something like much, that yeah. and you have like five or six hundred people coming tomorrow yeah, yeah. a couple dozen speakers um, i think nearly 50 speakers 50 speakers mm. now i feel a lot less special and so <laughs> i just thought it'd be a cool idea to and it was kind of taken from the ted talks and i just like this idea of someone getting up for 15 minutes given what they give and then and then someone else getting up and it, it keeps the audience fresh and it also um you also get low a lot of different diversity in the in the speakers then you don't just get like i suppose if you have one hour speakers i mean it's hard to get more than eight a day yeah and so we have like 20 Jesus. 25 it's 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 great and it just produces so much content in terms of people thinking and talking and then interacting and over lunch and breaks and that and so yeah it's quite it's quite dynamic you founded it continue to run it yeah um, keep trying to trying to fly the flag i mean for the majority of the 20th century i don't think we had much of a food culture of course there were pockets of 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 of, of greatness like small greatness but by and large we we were uh, i suppose a country that produced food for export you know we exported oysters we exported beef we exported mussels lobsters crab like we just sent everything away and then and what were you guys eating fucking stew and <laughs> what the fuck else was i eating i mean nothing memorable anyway you know uh, <laughs> it's just a long bleak uh, century of yeah like eating the leftover bits that you didn't sell across the, yeah uh, that you didn't uh, yeah they didn't sell to someone else and, and uh, i suppose in the last 20 20 years or so uh it has come together. And again, there was individuals probably uh, um, throughout the 20th century. I mean, you've got Myrtle Allen, who passed away this year in her 90s. I mean, she was pretty much the godmother of, of Irish food. And she she opened up in the 60s in, in Cork. And she started this farm-to-table movement, a bit like Alice, what Alice Waters did. And she mm. was doing it. But again, there was very just very small pockets um and she yeah she, i mean she was the beginning for me of what could happen literally by just going out and seeing what was in the field beside you and then using that yeah i mean of course you could look at try and analyze the history of it but like how it happened i mean you you can't just put it down to one man in one restaurant but like it's a whole cultural shift you know and it, of course there's a certain organicness to make it happen but also there's a lot of constructive things that you can do and i'd like to see that happen in ireland you know i love how you're like i'd like to see that happen meanwhile jp's been pushing somewhat demonically over the last four years to just push this through and you know every time i talk to somebody about you it's just like 
boy, he just won't let that fucker die. Like he's going to, he just keeps pushing it. It gets, keeps growing and gets bigger and bigger. And it's, uh, yeah. Like I, I think anyone who's cooking has something to say, you know? I mean, I've never eaten your cooking, but you've got a lot of Michelin stars, uh, over the years and I assume you're pretty good at it, but you're oh, also right. a writer and a communicator. And so I want to ask you about, about those things. So let's, let's, let's drop back. I have another sip of this. It's not Drink a, this. Yeah, it makes a lovely down. sound as well. Mm. I love the sound. It's like sleigh bells. It's, mm. like, it's like Christmas in my mouth. It's a dingles. <laughs> it's a dingles. It's dingles. For me, I'm so fascinated with uh, stuff like seaweed and oysters and shellfish, which have been here thousands of years. Thinking about, like, why aren't they in the, the normal narrative of our everyday eating? Even to take an example, like last night in the restaurant, we had in an ear, our Mission Star restaurant, we had two customers, one who had never had mussels before and one who had never had oysters before. I mean, that's very Danish. Like, they've got incredibly cold, clear blue waters, great Lumfjord oysters, mm. and a population that is just fucking dying to eat a pork chop. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, that, you, you could say Ireland is similar. I mean, yeah. we, uh, pigs and beef, you know, and, the, and a sprinkling of lamb, you know, uh, this is, uh, that's pretty much what we eat all the time. Um, and we're known for for um, for bacon and potatoes, you know. I mean, throughout history. And actually, the irony is that the potato, the more potatoes we got, the more pigs we got because we had loads of potatoes, so you could feed them to the pigs. And so we kept on making spuds, and then we made pigs, pigs and spuds. And, this, and there you've got a national dish. You have a national dish of bacon, cabbage, and mash, and and I, I it's uh, it's a tragedy where when you think of stuff like sea urchins, you know, and uh, it's really hard to get wild sea urchins now in, in Ireland because we overfished them in the 70s and we sold them to everyone else. We just fucking sent them out. Yeah. And w- I remember watching a little documentary where this guy down in Cork had said he just remembers trucks coming to collect them in the 70s and the locals were like, ah, yeah, fucking spiky things. Right. Uh, get them out of here. Probably went to Japan where they, at least they appreciate them, you know. I mean, I'm fascinated with Japan and I haven't, we were just talking about it, I haven't been yet and, but how they turned the sea into, into gold, you know, and we just have not, like the way fish is treated, the way shellfish and seaweed and we just, yeah. I hope we get there. At the moment, it's, it's, we're, we're on the, the crest of a wave or something, you know. And maybe that's our tragedy is that we, like for all our kind of cries of independence, I mean, Ireland from 1600 was used as a grazing ground for cattle for the British Empire. And, you know, we fed the whole world with corned beef. It went to the States. It went to Caribbean. It went everywhere except uh, except the Irish people who we had a famine and they all starved. But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't for want of, of food in the country. What was food like in your household when you were growing up? Was um, this, are, were you destined to be Not at all. People, no, no, not at all. Actually, I just had that conversation last night with someone. They said, oh God, you must have been brought up on the best quality food. And I was like, <laughs> Look at you. what the fuck are you yeah. talking about? I had like Rice Krispies and cornflakes in the morning. <laughs> fucking dodgy white sandwiches all right so how did you how did you have a first the first moment of culinary clarity in my early teens um i did home economics in school and i I enjoyed cooking i had asthma and there was only two choices there was like do woodwork or home economics and so i started cooking in home economics because i couldn't do woodwork and uh yeah i started cooking and then when i was 15 i had i took my, my first summer job i took as a as a as a chef in the university kitchens and 
yeah, I suppose I just enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed not only transforming a raw product into a, into a cook product, but I also enjoyed the ability to cook for others. It's a little bit like alchemy because we grew up in a family of six um, and, two, and, my, and my parents. And so it was it was it was almost like a there was an element of liberation being able to cook for people, even for my brothers and sisters. Probably the the first culinary epiphany I had. I don't know what age I was. Maybe I was uh, 11 or 12 was we were on holidays in Tipperary and we went into a hotel to eat and my mum was ordering burgers for everyone and then for some reason this was pre cooking I said I'm going to have the spaghetti bolognese and I remember my mum saying you're not going to eat that you won't like it <laughs> and I said no no I'm going to have it and so it came out with the smallest bit of parsley on top and that's the first time I've ever seen I'd ever seen parsley and I was like wow this little green thing on top and tasted it it was like wow it was like I don't think I'd ever eaten a herb before like yeah. a fresh herb right and then I ate this spaghetti bolognese and I mean, it could have been shit, I can't remember. But if, in my mind, it was the most magnificent thing I'd ever eaten. And it was different. And right. it was a way of making, uh, of, of, of separating myself from everyone else. To say, no, I, I eat the spaghetti bolognese. You eat the burgers. You, you're the yeah. peasants, you know. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. And we still do that with food all the time. There's a, there's a, there is a cultural elitism or a cultural, so many cultural divisions that we, that we put up because of the ways... And the things that we eat, you know. Well, I mean, there's a there's a tribe out there that I think goes across all class and race and any kind. It's just people who will try the shit mm. and people who won't. You're already in some kind of rare club, and it's it's funny because you know I think uh, Bourdain had talked about that experience being in France, you know, as a as a preteen and and you know deciding that he was going to eat an oyster. Yeah, I remember. Reading and this, like yeah. that, this was you know both a way to torment his brother who would not eat an oyster and to kind of, you know, define himself uh, as in a, on an identity level. And he found it completely life changing. And it sounds like that approach of just saying, like, I, I don't know who I am yet, but I am the person who ordered bolognese yeah. while all these other peons were eating burgers. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so somewhere in that you started working in kitchens, but you also said, I mean, speaking of Bourdain, you've said that he, you know, and his writing was a big influence on you when you were young it was supposed to be it was it was it was being able to combine those two things cooking and writing and i've i mean i started writing when i was um probably at a similar time 15 or 16 and um like everyone starts i think at that stage where you're writing poetry you're writing some stories of that now i really got into writing but not in not not in school i mean i was a fucking terrible fucking student at school um and i i finished did my exams and i didn't know what i wanted to do so um one of the one of the one of the things you could do when you didn't couldn't do anything was that you could go into a kitchen and start off as a kp and then all of a sudden you're you're a chef you know and and that's what that's why i suppose Bourdain's story chimes so well with me it was just that well what the fuck will i do i like food okay let's just um, so I took a couple of jobs as a KP and then I got a job as a chef. And then I, then it was a great way um, to travel, you know, because then you could just go somewhere else and work in another Italian restaurant. But you kind of had that skill set. So mm. went to Scotland. Oh, yeah, just I'll, I'll go into apply in Italian restaurants. Yeah. So I got a job in another Italian restaurant at the same time. I knew I wanted to go back to college and and, uh, and study because and, I loved English and I loved 
literature and that. And so I went back as a mature student when I was 22 to study English and art history in Cork. And I thought I wasn't going to cook anymore. For the first two years, I, I, I didn't cook at all. I mean, I cooked at home, um, but um, I didn't cook professionally. And it wasn't until my third year I started running out of money again. And then I went back and started cooking again. Yeah. And I finished my degree, started a PhD in art history. I did that for eight years. And in that period, I was cooking and... Um, I and I just never got got the hang of it. And um, in that period of time, we opened up three restaurants, had two children, and then I always had this PhD hanging over me. That <laughs> I was, I, I, it was like just two separate lives that I was living, yeah. and and that's why I always loved um, Bourdain's writing, and also other writers like Nigel Slater and different uh, people who loved food who wrote. Yeah, and and combined the two things really well. And for a long time, I wasn't able to combine them because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write fiction and plays, and I right. wanted to be a real writer. And I still feel, in spite of having written a cookbook and I have write a column in the national newspaper every week, I still feel I'm not a writer yet. Yeah, you know, it's I haven't written that piece of fiction or I haven't written that I know and when you talk to journalists like this I would have got a fucking punch in the face with some journalists he was like fuck you and you're fucking you're writing you're, you're taking up my space in that fucking newspaper <laughs> how about this with your fucking if you're not a writer why don't you get the fuck off yeah the page? that's what he was saying like chef yeah. do you people like you are stealing my fucking job and I was like that's very Brexit talk from uh, the journalists there I'll just get ahead of your argument there like one of the things that's been a revelation to me, having come from hard news and foreign correspondence and then shacking up with Matt, who cares about food above all things, and, and running into Tony, who was kind of in between, it was just that, that realization, which actually didn't take me very long at all, that like food is a very perfectly legitimate and in some ways just like incredibly fortuitous manner to be a writer. Like, yes. It's a thing. I completely agree with you, and it's just, I still get my doubts but I do know I mean I'm working on another fucking cookbook now and I, I do enjoy like crafting things with words and I do enjoy explaining things and and and, and creating a narrative around uh, like a fucking gin or something like oh, why 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 is this here and now so I like I'm still somewhere in between you know yeah. I always say I'm a, I'm a, just a confused chef you know I mean I went back, <laughs> when I when I didn't finish the PhD I went and did a, an MA in, in English two years ago and then I finished that, and then I started another PhD in drama. Right, so that's a little fucked up. Yeah, like you should probably just think about raising a family and running I know, a bunch I know. of successful They're downstairs at the moment. This. Your daughters are at the bar. I, I, saw I, I, that. I gave them my my card and said, "Just buy what you need to buy." They're only six and nine, so they won't buy any alcoholic drinks. Yeah, and said, "Look, just get the ice cream, whatever you need, and I'll be back down in a while." Uh, why? That does bring up a good question of uh, why are you talking to me today? Your beard should be on fire. You should be running around in total panic and instead we're having this delightfully floral uh, elderflower gin drink someone asked me once like what advice could you offer and I once said like just talk to everyone talk to people yeah and uh, they were saying oh, like in terms of cooking I was like talk to everyone that is that is fucking cooking advice because you want to know how to chiffonade talk to people talk to people because then you, you travel you fucking talk and you see that and you see that in, in Matt's books I mean I think uh, that's what I, I really love about them. It's that you see that traveling, talking, learning, cooking. Yeah. It's just a fucking, you get embedded in a culture. People always say to me, oh, do you not feel bad? You didn't finish the, the PhD and that. But I mean, I might have written half a million words. Right, fuck and, those guys. Yeah. And, but <laughs> I, I, it didn't, I don't think I would have written a cookbook if I hadn't have failed doing the PhD. Because it taught me how to write. Yeah. You know, and it taught me how to 
think and to structure things and yeah. i think i took all the best bits and uh, and um and and wove it into the 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 story that that our cava cookbook tells is like why cook spanish food in ireland i mean wh- what are the reasons to do it i mean of course one is personal but there's also histor- historical reasons and there's also cultural reasons and i just wanted to explore them Well, let's let's do the Cliff's Note version of that because I am sort of fascinated that you know obviously we Matt lives in Spain we have a strong connection to Spain I there's one of the things I always that always stood out about you was like here's a man who started in restaurant touring uh, in Spanish cuisine in I, Galway I, I mean I loved Spain we went to uh, Barcelona quite a bit when we were when we were in college I had friends living there my wife's brother lived there and I think the two things that stick out to me was the way and this 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 is also um uh, ties in with the italian the way that food um was embedded in culture you know that when you went out for drinks you you had food too and when you you shared food and then when later on in the night at 12 or 1 or 2 there was still food yeah. and it, that didn't exist in ireland you went to the pub you didn't eat you just drank and i just really loved that uh, that way of eating, that kind of communal way of eating and the variety of different food and the, the, the shellfish and different regional tapas. And I just I just loved it. And then we opened this restaurant really not knowing what we're doing. So let's open a tapas bar. And we went to various tapas bars in, in Ireland, in, in England. And also we went over to the States to see what, what tapas bars look like outside um, outside Spain. And, and then we opened this restaurant with this short... Um, tapas menu that was a like a homage to Spain yeah um, and then that got wrapped up with all of the different things that were happening like the local food movement so then we started to bring in more local food because we had farmers calling to us saying would you use my chicken and I go yeah I'd love to use your chicken and so all of that narrative got lap, got wrapped up in our um, love of Spanish food hmm. and and people really loved it as well because it was such a new way uh, this is 10 years ago, of uh, of eating in Ireland. And I remember still people having difficulty sharing food. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> like, where's my plate? And you're going, well, you're sharing. And it's going like, well, these, where's my three tapas? And you go, no, no, we're just going to drop them down as they're cooked. And go, well, I'm going to want these three together. And you go, that's not how it works. And it did take a, a long time. Yeah. It took just, like about two years. Just like convincing them that the toothpick was their plate. Uh, yeah, and yeah. saying you need to you need to share food. And people get it now. I, mean, I think women got it before, way before the men. The men huh. were in like going, why am I getting such a small portion? And why do I have to order three different things? Can I just order one thing? And we still, one of the things I still hate is that we give people an individual plate and um, it was one of the, well, just one of the things I had to give up on because people felt that they, it's their security blanket. Then they make the most horrible concoctions where they bring four different tapas onto the plate, mix them all up and then eat them. Go, this is really nice. And you're going, you're ruining my fucking food. <laughs> Don't play with your food. Yes. Uh, that's amazing, right? That sense of like personal space and like the idea that you should have one single this is the this dish is my food that will yeah. do me for tonight. Yeah, uh, I remember people walking out because we didn't do that. We actually had an a la carte and a tapas menu, mm. and at the beginning it was about seventy percent a la carte and thirty percent tapas. Yeah, and and as the years went on, it became like fifty, then sixty, then seventy, and then when we we moved cab after five years, 
And we said, we're not going to put on any main courses other than paella. We said, we're not putting on the steak. That's all gone. And uh, and it took a while for people to get used to it. And then people got used to it. But How many people did you have to forcibly eject from the restaurant before that happened? A few. You know, I had a few arguments with people in my day in Cava. We had four walk out because we didn't do steak. They came in and they were like, but you can get a steak tapa. They're like, can you make it bigger? And I was like, no, it's the tapa. You can get... You can get three of them if you want. They're like, no, we want the steak. Yeah, so they, so they left. And, uh, and I remember what, what, this woman waving a fucking lamb chop in my face because I, I, it was listed as rack of lamb. So we had cut the two individual chops off the rack. And she was like, a rack is always four. But I was like, a rack is not always four. A fucking rack of lamb is eight or nine. It's got eight or nine ribs. And she was like, no. And she was swinging this fucking chop in my face. Honestly, she got me on a bad day and I fucking threw her out of the restaurant. And she, I, I refused to take her money. And I remember her husband going, stop fighting, stop fighting. <laughs> her mother was just looking down and she was swinging this fucking chop in my face. Going, look at this, look at this. And I was like, get out. Just get the fuck out of here. And I said, I don't want your money. Just get out. And... It, it's great pleasure. It's a great pleasure to throw people out of restaurants. Uh, yeah, I mean, as any listener to this episode can hear, you're a very charming and kind person, but it is fun to listen to you turn on a customer. Yeah, uh, in, it's in happened maybe four times in my in 10 years. And <laughs> those, like are, those are the bedtime stories I yeah, want you to tell I'm me. I'm like the corner of the rack, you know, when I just like, oh, fuck <laughs> this. And I just leave the kitchen. And another woman as well who ate everything and then said, came down and looked for a discount. And I was like, I didn't like it. And I was like, which bit didn't you like? You ate everything. So then I had this argument with her. And then I said, you know what? Get the fuck out of the restaurant. And she said, I want to pay something. And I was like, you're paying fucking nothing. And get out and never come back. And it was liberating. Yeah. She was actually, I'm going to ring the local radio station and tell them about you. And I was like, fucking tell them about me. Go on. <laughs> I should say, I feel like you've just uh, uh, kind of revealed some Groupon for a great discount at your <laughs> restaurants. Going to be a complete unreasonable ass, and uh, JP will perhaps get to the point where he will not I'll accept your you money. Out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can handle the conflict. You went from the top of spot to Anir. To Anir. Uh, a restaurant beside Kava closed down. Yeah, Kava was the name of the top of spot. Yeah, I don't know what possessed me in my right mind I still don't know like it's like the desire to write what gave me the desire to open up more restaurants I don't know we wanted to do this restaurant uh, my friend Enda it was just back from Noma suppose we went about and said well let, like, let's let's investigate Irish food let's look at Irish food and see what we can learn from the Nordics you know and that was the kind of model that, yeah. we, that we had and I love I suppose one of the things I love about food is that you can do different things with it and I'm not a purist by any means I, mean, I love Mexican food I love Spanish food I love Italian food I mean I love French food and I'd never say define myself by one particular style of cooking I mean I love using beautiful products and then I just just go with it you know and I'm not a, I'm, I'm not, and I'm not a, a fusion cook either like you know I'm not going to combine uh, four different tapas no, on one plate no I like to try and uh, keep a little bit of uh, integrity and so we opened an ear um, as a as a little project you know yeah. um, as a project to investigate wild food seaweed um, learn from the Nordics, you know? And 14 months later, we won a Michelin star. And it was like a fucking avalanche hitting the place. It was yeah. like, like it, nearly, it, it, it nearly destroyed the whole restaurant, you know? And it was great. I mean, it was an international award. But six months later, there wasn't one person left in the kitchen than there was when we won the award. 
You get all these loons like going, oh, I'm going to get a Michelin star. My dining room's 90 covers. And I go, no, you're not. Like, it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters how good your food is, even though they'll say it's always about the food. I don't think it's possible to, to do what is required in European Michelin dining. It's different in Japan. It's different in Singapore. You yeah, could say yeah. it's different in other places because the Japanese, like, have a, you can have a ta- an eight-seater restaurant that has one star. It does right. one dish. And yeah. that's, like, that's my dream, you know? <laughs> but uh, but I do think that it's, it's about the relationship between the amount of cooks and uh, floor staff you have and the, the amount of diners. And I think you're, if you're, you're, you should be looking at 40 to 45 tops if you look at any any three-star restaurant in the world yeah. other than say 11 madison they do 110 a night but they've got like 35 chefs in the kitchen Jesus. and that, that's probably the busiest mission star restaurant a three-star mission i've ever been in yeah and like and that takes they have 70 staff working all the time and they have 110 they do 110 diners but like to keep that level of consistency right it's just i can't imagine the pressure Tell me about the menu at Anir. What makes it Irish? You know, how are you trying to define some new movement if you are through, yeah, through the food um, serving? I suppose it's the menu is product driven, so it, it's seasonal. It's uh, what's on now. It's uh, so at the moment we have like say celeriac, which is a seasonal vegetable. We have it with some pickled wild garlic um, that we preserved in uh, from earlier on in the spring. We have um, beef tartare with uh, smoked egg yolk and some dillisk seaweed. Um, so the recognisable products, but yeah. we try and embed um, uh, Irish products in uh, in them, or uh, products that uh, that I think are are worthy um, recipients. And so we have we try and the the big things when we're thinking about the menu is always like how do we bring like wild food and seaweed into the menu? You know, yeah. we have all these wonderful seaweeds, we have all this wonderful wild food. How do we get it into the menu and weave it in so it's not like in your face? You right. Know, you can still go in and have oysters and mussels and beef tartare. And uh, we have wild duck on at the moment. We have it with a smoked uh, pear and elderberries. So an elderberry sauce, there's wild berries. With the pear is their local pears that we pickle and smoke. Um, so it's, it's a balance between this wild food and seaweed. And on the other side, we have... Um, um, the different traditions of preservation. Mm. And I'm, I'm fascinated by them, like pickling, salting, curing, smoking, fermenting. Like I, I really, I think it's amazing to think about how, how people kept food pre-refrigeration. Right. And we have just lost that because we don't need to think of it anymore. No, because there's a freezer and it's full of fish fingers. Uh. <laughs> that's, and the, the, I think that in the, yeah. the, the 19... Oh, shit, that's my fucking phone. <laughs> Oh. People are like, hey, you're supposed to run a conference right now. Yeah, that's probably my fucking children um, ringing me going, Daddy, where are you? It's like, why did you leave us in this bar uh, to go up and talk to a man in this room? <laughs> Listen, man, a lot of kids have been through that. and It's ended very differently. Yeah, but uh, no, it's 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 a balance between those two things. And I want Anir to be um, approachable. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, God, it's a bit weird because you say you're doing Irish food and you don't have stew on the menu. Right. And you go, oh, they say, pie. oh, it's uh, sh- shellfish. All right. I don't eat shellfish. Um, and you're going, what? was that the door? That is the door. Right. Oh, hi, sorry. No problem. Come on in. Oh, there I've you heard go. of those guys. Oh. Thank you very much. No problem. Cool. You got surprise. You got a surprise. Uh, so yeah, this is this should happen in all of my podcast episodes where the guest <laughs> somehow has arranged a gift 
uh, bag and pack it to arrive um, in my hotel room. Thank you, JP. I don't know what's in that, but no, I'm sure uh, it's, it's I, just I, a bunch I, of Big Macs. Uh, yeah, it's a bunch of bunch of Big Macs and some dodgy Budweiser. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, some uh, local beer. There's a new burger place opening down Bioneer, Hansen Burger. They have a great sense of provenance, and yeah. they've taken part in the food festival that we've organized over a couple of years. And it's it's burgers with just a little bit of terroir sprinkled over them, right. you know, with just enough, say, farmhouse cheese or the bun or there's there's there's, a, there's whatever product you take, there is a way to embed your local food culture into it you know and take duck for example people say no like i get my wild duck from france because it's better than uh, irish wild duck and i would say like well that's questionable but also if you don't if you if you don't start to buy the irish duck yeah and say to him well this is the way we'd like the duck and give him a speck um, because he's just out in the field shooting the fuckers out of the sky you know and you say well can we make sure that like they're not like shot to shit when we get them and <laughs> right. and when you start to buy them right. and he gets into it and you get into it and you right. say well look I'm going to give you more money the better the duck is and then things grow the fish is the same thing and our fishmonger has said that he's been to Japan and seen what they do and then come back to the Irish fishmonger and saying why are you kicking the shit out of the fish yeah and they go sure it's fish Right. You know, just fuck it all in a box. Doesn't matter what fucking type it is, you know, fuck the squid and on top of the turbot and on top of the mackerel. And you're going, well, how about like they're, they're, treat them nicely and I'll give you more money. All right, uh, speed round, then we'll, we'll then finish. Then i to go get the kids. Yeah. They're still there. I'm looking out at something. I'll, I'll put a picture of this in the in the show page, but this is a picture of, of La Catalia. Yeah, La Catalia, yeah. It's a little, I suppose, small lock off Galway Bay. It's like an estuary yeah, situation estuary, going on yeah. there. All right, so, and there's some herbage back there. There's a lot of waterfowl. There's something living in the muck. Give me give me a, a, a course that you'd make from La Catalia. La Catalia, jeez, eat a swan, you know? Um, oh, I like you're, that. Yeah, you're not allowed to uh, eat swans. I think, I, I think, no, but... How do you think it would taste? Uh, I had a Dutch guy in the restaurant that asked me, why don't you eat the swans? <laughs> Why don't you Irish eat the swans? And I was like, I actually don't know. So I had to go and look it up on Google. And seemingly... The, the unnerving. Why don't you, with, because one guy was camping not too far from La Catalia and they found a, he had barbecued a swan. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't illegal, but at the same time, people had fr- frowned upon it. You know, the poor swan. But like, no one gives a fuck about the turkeys, you know? Yeah. And see, l- land swans. The reason why the, yeah. we don't eat swans is because they don't uh, reproduce fast enough. That's, uh-huh. And that's the primary reason. Okay. They used to eat them in Holland. And he was like, that's why he was asking me. <laughs> um, and also, they're too big to fit in an oven. Um, Jesus, I know. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but you could, and like, they're 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 pretty aggressive too. You'd have yeah. to become ready to fight. One of the one of the interesting things, interesting recipes that I came across yeah. were um, when I'm writing this Irish food cookbook was um, uh, pickled heron. So I thought I thought it was, it was herring. I said they had just misspelled it, and I showed it to a food historian, and she was like, "No, it's heron, like the bird." Pickled heron. Heron. And the recipe, this is uh, from 1780, from a, an Irish kind of big house, which were like country houses. Um, so probably pro- pro- Protestant cooking. Um, it said, take 100 herons and chop their heads off. Eviscerate the herons. And then it went on to put spices like mace and nutmeg 
and cinnamon and then to pickle them and it was do you know what it reminded me of like almost like an escabeche like a, right right which is like they still do that in spain with guinea fowl but that's a that's a like slaughter on like a an audubon level that like. is we have one heron in Galway bay and he so i i'm quick pro- you better get him and pickle yeah. him before and puffin as well you know we're not allowed to eat puffin anymore in ireland but well that yeah i can imagine I know iceland they still eat them yeah the they're pharaohs like, but they're yeah. um they're like water pigeons you know they're like as oh, people yeah. go oh they're so cute looking and, yeah. and again, no one gives a fuck about the pigeons. No, we can't anthropomorphize that. All right, but so we, we have a we have a main dish of a swan. A swan. We, I, I think we'd find some seaweed. We could, but we could, could find some. Seaweed. We could wrap them in seaweed. Oh, I like that. Yeah, wrap them in uh, in kelp. Okay, and then, and then barbecue them. You know. I oh, think, nice. Yeah. yeah, and then I think you, you probably need a lot of butter, you know, because the swan is pretty lean. Yeah. So uh, did, there isn't a dairy. There's a dairy not too far away. Yeah, I don't see a lot of butter right in this immediate vista. But no, no. Uh, um, we could we could get we well, look we could slow we could cook them. Do you know what I think we could do? We could brine them in the salt water. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and then we could tenderize them, and then wrap them in the kelp, cook them really slowly. Yeah, and then put them back into his feathers, like a beautiful like a Phoenix. swan pie, like a swan pie. They used to eat swan pies in Holland. Do you know, that, you, wasn't they, the Bjork had a whole era that really? was like that. Oh yeah, that's Just true being, as like, well. Swan pies, and they used. To, no wonder they. No wonder so many people got food poisoning. They used to like bake the swan and then wrap its flesh back over it. So when you came in, <laughs> you ha- like they used to. So they used to. Um, what's oh. the word? Uh, flay it. Yeah, and then bake it, and then put it back in. Can you imagine the amount of bacteria that would be hanging around? And yeah, just like every, on on its scalp. You know? just going in for swan pie, and they're going, "Ah, oh, Jimmy died. Why did he die of? I don't know. We can't work it out." I yeah. mean, that's where like chef and serial killer really kind of come together. You know, 100%. let's take let's take some cooked food and then wrap and it. And sometimes, in its own skin. I mean, maybe it is. Um, like you can say everyone has a tendency to violence inside them. I mean, we're human and like killing animals, I think, is what also makes us makes us human. And I do think we it's not we have a responsibility, but I think that if you if you eat meat or you eat yeah. fish, I think we, you have a responsibility to kill it. Like and we, then to wrap it in its own flesh again. <laughs> wrap it in kelp. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's leave it there. You uh, among your other responsibilities besides just killing, uh, <laughs> killing creatures. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully you don't get any complaints to, in to on To be the, a father. Yeah, uh, yeah. If they children. ever get to listen to this uh, no, show. No, people love this. The, the killing swan stuff will be great. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Produced by Josie Holtzman and Danielle Roth of Future Projects. Our editor is Roads and Kingdoms' Taffy Mukanyadze. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Shouts, as always, to the legendary hip-hop producer Dan the Automator for the music, and to one of the great political illustrators of our time, Adele Rodriguez, for the art. Next week, I'll be in the same hotel room in Galway, destroying the Bloody Mary bar with the great Shannon Martinez, a meat-eating vegan chef from Melbourne, Australia. We'll meet you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.